Cinema Psych Podcast. At that moment, I knew, surely and clearly, that I was witnessing perfection. everybody and welcome to the cinema psych podcast the podcast where psychology meets film i am your host dr alex swan and today's episode is a trip down a period piece lane so we are going to be talking about a river runs through it this drama came out in 1992 It was directed by Robert Redford, and it is the adaptation of a memoir by Norman MacLean, who is played by uh, Craig Sheffer. Uh, Brad Pitt, in one of his early roles, kills it. He's so good. Uh, Tom Skerritt as the Reverend MacLean, one of his best performances, and then a few other people here and there. Um, Joseph Gordon-Lovett's first movie role, uh, like with actual lines and stuff. And uh, so if you've never seen this film, it is a story about two brothers and their father and the nature and allegory of fly fishing and how fly fishing intersects the um, life of these three men and uh, how various aspects of their lives are seen through this lens. Now, of uh, now at the recording of this uh, episode, uh, "A River Runs Through It" is available on IMDb TV, which means that um, you can watch it for free with ads. And I don't know how long it's going to last. So, you know, if you listen to this several months from when I recorded or when it was released, then it may not be available. But if you have some some inkling, I mean Brad Pitt just uh just does a phenomenal job in this in this film. So, I do definitely recommend it. We do uh I do want to add the spoiler warning. Spoiler time. So, just in case um, you know, our discussion uh, ruins anything for you, uh, though, though the end is a bit telegraphed, I will say. Uh, so jo- please join us uh, for this episode as we discuss A River Runs Through It. My guest host today is friend of the show, Jason Spiegelman. Jason, how are things going in the age of the COVID pandemic? I understand you recently finished a summer course, right? Right. Well, thank you for having me back. I'm really pleased to join you again. Um, yeah, in the age of COVID, teaching has become a, a brave new world, and I just finished an in-person summer class. Thankfully, I have avoided the Rona, and in a couple of weeks, we'll try again. All right. I mean, I, I, as of this recording, uh, I, tried, I, I, am, I am back at it. Tomorrow, 
is first day of classes. So we'll see what that's like. What is that like? We'll hope that your uh, your college doesn't go the way the University of North Carolina. I think it took them all of a week to give up. So same thing with Notre Dame. Yeah, Notre Dame. Yeah. yeah. Well, welcome. It's, it's... Well, welcome back, Jason. Uh, so today, as I said at the top of the show, we are going to be talking about a fairly interesting period piece, and uh, I don't think we have had a period piece on the show yet. I'm sure there'll be there'll be another one coming up, but just because period pieces are all over the place. But um, we're going to do some fly fishing, right? So right. a river runs through it. What's what's up with this choice? So this is one that I have um, really had sort of an affinity for for a number of years. Um, it's sort of hard to explain exactly why, but when I talk to my students about movies for psychology papers that I assign, this is always in the list. Mm-hmm. And the lucky or unlucky student who gets this one, I always tell them the same thing. I tell them this is one of my five top movies of all time. It is one that you're going to have to be a little patient with because it is not about fishing. You sort of have to look past that. And um, it's one of those movies that I make it a point to go back and watch at least once every five or six months. And it sort of helps me get my perspective back on on the world around me. And I'm not really sure why, but this movie has always just spoken to me. And I enjoy watching it uh, a couple times a year. Couple times a year. That is a time investment. Um, so I, I like the choice. Um, I like that you sort of went out of the box, outside of the box, with this choice, as opposed to maybe something that is um, more accessible on the minds of psychologists. So I like the choice. I um, am glad that you finally. Um, made me watch it because it's obviously it's been around for a long time. It's been around for the vast majority of my life. Um, but uh, I have to say that I have mixed feelings about the about the movie. Um, so before we get into the psychology stuff, I do want to just go back and forth here about the um, the just the film in general. Uh, so of the things that I did not like about the film were its length and pacing it is too slow there are too many scenes where people are just staring at each other (laughs) i think that's probably accurate Uh, at the same time um i don't know if i would give the producers of the film credit for doing that intentionally but maybe part of the sort of underlying message maybe the meta message there is we're supposed to slow down Uh, a lot of the movie focuses on calm your mind, listen to the babbling brook, listen to the river, um, go and just be. So I wonder if the pacing of the movie is intentional to reinforce the message that it um, that it drives from the memoir from which it was written. I disagree. Um, yes, I I understand. I understand what you're, you're talking about with um, the idea about stopping smelling the roses um, but the end of the film comes way too abruptly. So that's a pacing problem from a filmmaking perspective. Um, we are not given enough information about um, Paul's character uh, throughout the film. And that may be part of the memoir aspect of it, but it, the, it, it just seems to end 
too abruptly. Uh, and um, spoiler alert, Paul dies. Uh, yes, <laughs> Brad Pitt does die. Um, and, I, and I just felt yay. like the, I, I, no, no yays. Yay. Uh, <laughs> I just felt like um, that came too quick. That that was just like oh oh, and now we have to now we have to talk about his uh, death. The fact that he died, and I I I would disagree with you because it felt to me like that was foreshadowed repeatedly throughout the movie, particularly in the scene which you know we'll get to the different no, scenes I, that we're going to talk I, about. I think it was for no no. It, I, don't get me wrong, it was foreshadowed, and I knew okay. he was going to die. You just felt it was sort way, of all this. All of a sudden, he's dead. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. It was uh, a matter of um, telling versus showing, and I want my movies to show me okay. and not tell me. Um, and I understand that it's from a memoir and it's from a book, and so it's the adaptation doesn't come across the same way as if you were to read it. And I think that may be the issue that I'm having with it. That that's all. That's all. I mean, the, it, it, as far as its pacing is, I mean, if that was my, uh, and that's my only knock. If that was uh, an egregious thing for a film, then um, I would have said, "Hey, Jason, I hate you for making me watch this." <laughs> but pacing is is not terrible. I'll tell you sure. the things that I do like about it. So I loved Brad Pitt. This is one of his early roles, and he killed it. Pun intended. Uh, he killed it. He did so well. Um, and I also enjoyed the fly fishing. I'm not a fisher. A uh, fisher f- men person. Yeah. Um, I've I've fished before. I've bait fa- bait fished before. I've not never fly fished. Um. But I did enjoy it. They, uh, Robert Redford did a very good job with that. And then whoever the cinematographer were, was did what that was impeccable. And the allegory with the fly fishing was phenomenal. So absolutely. I'll give you that. Yeah. And this is this is interesting that you say that because there are a few things that I dislike more than fishing. Um, <laughs> if, if, if I want fish, I'll go to the store and I'll buy a fish and I'll save myself four hours and some sunburn. But um, watching this movie and watching the way they sort of spiritualize the, um, the, the, the ritual of fly fishing really does make me want to go out, buy some waders, and learn how to do it for a day and stand out there and just sort of commune with nature, which is 180 degrees, the opposite of the kind of person I am. Yeah. But uh, they make it look like something that would really be uh, an enjoyable experience. So I would agree with you. Yeah. In addition, and, in addition to Brad Pitt's uh, amazing performance, another really amazing performance in this film was that of Tom Skerritt, who plays the Reverend McLean, you know, the, the father figure. Um, and in doing a little bit of research for our talk today, I uncovered a little tidbit that Skerritt reports that this is his favorite performance of his career. And I think with, with really good reason, it's an exceptional performance of a very complex, complicated character. Yeah, who doesn't have a terrible amount of screen time because it's not really about him. Um, but in the scenes that he does have, it's like, whoa, whoa, to have a dad like that, whoa. Sure, and and although he doesn't have a lot of screen time, um, in many of the scenes where he's not there, he's still there. 
And I think that is one of the really interesting facets of the of the character, maybe not the performance, but the character himself. Um, there's so many times when his influence is coming through the the secondary characters of the sons that I think is is really powerful. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, so before we get into some of the more um, nuanced psych stuff, because uh, um, that is the nature of this show, I do want to remind everyone that um, you have been on this program before. Um, So go check out episode, I think it was three, uh, where we talked about Inception. Wow. Exactly. And um, if you want some giggles, because I, I haven't met a person yet that I've that I've, I've shared this with. Um, if you want some giggles, check out uh, the blooper for that. I put it on YouTube. Um, check out the blooper for that. I will I will link it uh, in this episode's description just in case anybody wants to go um, go listen to that. But Jason, are you honored to be here? It is definitely my honor to be here today. It is. What an, it is what an honor, honor it is for me to be here. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's not pretentious at all. <laughs> uh, all right. So <clears throat> the psych now. Let's get into some of the nuts and bolts. Uh, because as we talked about right before we started recording, uh, we 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 sort of agreed on how the... Psych, I psych concepts aren't uh, blaringly obvious. You kind of have to dig for them, and so it's more thematic than anything, um, right? So the uh, the one thing that I do want to mention um, before I let you have the floor, Jason, is um, something that I'm going to be talking about quite a bit this semester, and so it's that's why like really just screamed at me as I was watching this um, is the intro part of the film when they are children. Robert Redford is narrating the memoir as old Norman McLean. Um, and he's talking about their childhood and when their father uh, took them out to go fishing for the first time. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and play that clip of uh, Norman describing how the father uh, taught them how to fly fish. So my brother and I learned to cast Presbyterian style on a metronome. He began each session with the same instruction. Casting is an art that is performed on a four-count rhythm between 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock. If he had had his way, nobody who did not know how to catch a fish would be allowed to disgrace a fish by catching it. So it was with my formal education as well. Each weekday while my father worked on his Sunday sermon, I attended the school of the Reverend McLean. He taught nothing but reading and writing, and being a Scot, believed that the art of writing lay in thrift. Half as long. (sighs) 
So while my friends spent their days at Missoula Elementary, I stayed home and learned to write the American language. Again, half as long. Good. Now throw it away. So you see from that 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 really interesting description is um, just how much procedural memory plays a role. Skill building. It's an art form as it's described in the movie. How to properly fly fish, uh, which you can't just grab a pole and go out in the middle of a stream and think you're going to catch some trout or some bass. It's just not going to happen, right? You have to learn how to properly do it. And so I'm going to be talking about procedural memory quite a bit this semester because I am I'm teaching um, uh, memory. And it's a great example, actually, of somebody taking a skill that they have and describing it in... A little bit more than a little bit more than dry step by step, right? No, absolutely. And I think that in addition to just the the procedural memory, sort of what goes from being very controlled to automatic and therefore implicit is the emotional attachment that's associated with the memories. Yeah. And the the very powerful line is as the Reverend is teaching his son how to fish, um, I'm gonna get the quote a little bit wrong, but Nobody who doesn't know how to catch a fish should be allowed to dishonor the fish by catching it. And mm-hmm. so you're going to learn the way I have learned, and there is no other right way to do it. Right. And that sets up, of course, a very powerful scene later in the movie when Paul's character decides to break free of his father's teaching and do this new kind of casting that he taught himself. They called it shadow casting. And mm-hmm. sort of the moment when the child breaks free from the parent, the bird flies the nest, so to speak. So yeah. sort of procedural memories linking with um, uh, episodic memories and emotional involvement. I then saw something remarkable. For the first time, Paul broke free of our father's instruction into a rhythm all his own. And, and the last thing I'll mention about that is that um, when um, Norman comes back from Dartmouth after after six or seven years, um, he, he goes fly fishing again with Paul. And Paul makes a joke about how his form is a bit rusty. But then only a few minutes later, he regains his form. Right. It's like the old phrase. It's like the old adage. It's like riding a bike. Right. Because once we learn how to balance on a bike, we can get even if we haven't ridden a bike in years and years and years and years, we can get back on a bike and be like, oh, yeah, I know how to balance on this thing. And so I thought that was a great um, 
little nugget to go back, that goes all the way back to that first scene when they were um, learning how to fly fish. That's what that's why procedural memory is so amazing. Absolutely. And it's interesting that you use the analogy of, you know, never forgetting how to ride a bike. When I talk to my students about memory and we talk about the various theories of forgetting, most notably decay theory or memory trace theory. Um, and I explained to them that one of the reasons why decay theory is really not an adequate theory of forgetting is because of all of the things that we don't forget, even through years of disuse. And I actually point, I usually pick an older student and I say, when was the last time you rode a bicycle? And they'll say 10, 15, 20 years ago, if we went outside right now and I gave you a bicycle, could you ride it? Well, of course. So, um, that's the idea as well. And it takes him just a few casts. He gets frustrated because he can't do it as well. Mm -hmm. And then we have that. The, the music increases and we see them close up on his hands and then he catches a fish. So a little cheesy, but also kind of kind of fun. But I mean, mostly accurate. Yeah. I mean, they've been doing it for uh, 10, 15 years at least before uh, he leaves for Dartmouth. Um, and then he comes back and I, I don't I, I can't speak to fly fishing itself because i have no idea how difficult it is i'm sure it's really difficult uh and so i can't i can't speak to being able to regain as quickly but it seems like you know he got it back pretty quick sure uh, another good example for many of your listeners might be how many of us learned to play a musical instrument in our adolescence and right. then we stopped playing it and then 15 years from now someone puts that instrument in your hands and 20 minutes later, you're you're 80% of the way back to where you were when mm -hmm. you gave it up. So sort of a similar concept. Yeah, I really enjoy that. I really enjoy that. Um, that was a great connection for me just because of where my my head's at um, these days in planning for the courses. So um, I wanted to pick your brain on some of the morality uh, issues that you found in the film. So you want to speak to that? Oh, sure. Um, there were several areas where it seems to me that the, the film is, is sort of pressing us to think in terms of moral or ethical dilemmas, some of them more obvious and some of them less obvious. I mean, the more obvious ones where, you know, the boys get into a fight and they can't be, they can't be manly until they've spilled their blood in fights. Um, or in battle, as I, as they say, um, going down into the street and uh, the, the little boys shaking their hips at the women in the house of ill repute. Um, and all of these things, of course, testing the world, trying to find where the boundaries are, while at home, the good Reverend McLean is writing his sermon for Sunday's church. So there's sort of a nice juxtaposition of the children testing the morality of life while the Reverend is at home sort of polishing it. Yeah. Um, the Reverend is also uh, an interesting character. You and I were speaking before we started recording today about a scene where he demonstrates a little bit of bias, perhaps a little bit of prejudice, when he finds out that his, his now-grown son, who's a reporter, has changed the spelling of their last name and has capitalized it. And he says, now everybody's going to think that we're lowland Scots. Mm -hmm. And sort of demonstrating a bias against people from a, a different part of uh, their, their historical heritage. Right. And and it's it's probably well, in the early 20th century, I would 
I would imagine the Reverend is maybe first generation American. So Norman and Paul are second generation Americans. And th- that would be that would be my guess as far as the time period is concerned. So, you know, they don't have a connection to Scotland like the Reverend might because of his parents coming directly from Scotland, you know, uh, immigrating or emigrating from um, from Scotland. So I thought that was interesting, too. It's it's odd um, that uh, the reverend has such these has these peculiarities Um, and it's probably has to do with the frequent uh, 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 maybe comparison is not the right word. Uh, frequent mentions of uh, Christianity differences among the groups that are in uh, uh, Missoula, Montana. Yeah, he refers to um, uh, Norm's girlfriend's family uh, in a sort of uh, peculiar way, uh, running them down for having a different denomination. Um, and so, you know, even even the high figure of the of the spiritually um, untouchable reverend demonstrates uh, a few ambiguities of his moral character. Another area where um, this idea of ethics and morals and choosing the right decision really stuck out for me, um, and sort of relating it back to psychology theory, is um, the uh, moral decision-making model of Kitchener. Okay. And this is one that I first really came into contact with um, when I was doing clinical training. Mm -hmm. And for those who aren't familiar, Kitchener's model has five basic tenets to it, um, that in order for something to be a moral choice or an ethical decision, it has to adhere to the premises of autonomy, justice, beneficence, non-malfeasance, and fidelity. Um, and of those five, and I'll, I'll spare everybody the lecture on what they are, um, the two that really stand out for me are fidelity and autonomy. Mm-hmm. Fidelity, of course, is the idea that, going back again to the reverend, that nothing is more important than faithfulness to your tribe, to your kin, to your family, and of course to scripture. And it's it's very distressing to him how he sees Paul sort of casting his family aside and also casting mm-hmm. aside, you know, the ethos with which he raised him. And that's a, that that's an interesting subplot. In terms of autonomy, the idea that we should respect people's independence, this is this is a great struggle for Norm throughout the movie, um, as children, how much does he try to um, drag his younger brother back to the fold? How much does he try to calm down Paul's um, nature of being rebellious? Um, as an adult, um, when Paul is dealing with these addiction issues, um, alcoholism, gambling addiction, and so on and so forth, Norm has a clear struggle for, where do I, where do I tell my brother I'm going to drag you back by the collar of your shirt and where do I respect your right to make your own choices, even if they are wrong choices? Um, we see that as a secondary issue when he's dealing with Jesse's brother, Neil, who I will describe as an ultimate tool bag. Um, and he wants to help Neil, but also recognizes that Neil is probably beyond help. And one of the interesting dialogue moments is when he's talking to Paul about Neil, and he says, how do you help that son of a gun? And he doesn't say gun. And Paul says, maybe what he <laughs> likes is somebody trying to help him. And I thought that was that was really interesting because Paul seems to me, forgive me for going Freudian, Paul's projecting right onto Neil. You know, I, I don't want you to help me, but I like that you're trying to help me. And I don't that's, know. that's a theme. 
I don't, we don't have to be Freudian. We could just say that Paul was talking about himself. Okay, well. You don't have to bring Freud into this. He projected. <laughs> or he was just talking about himself. Uh, I, I, I do, um, I do like that, um, application, uh, and, and especially with Norman being the, uh, parentified child, as you, as you, uh, noted, um, because he does handle most of the raising of Paul, um, because you see a split happen when, uh, Norman goes off to Dartmouth, that's when, uh, uh, Paul decides, okay, I'm going to go to college myself, but he, d- he stays in Missoula and I guess goes to the University of Montana. Uh, I, I don't, I think that's the one out there um, in Missoula. Um, but then he goes and takes a job in Helena. And that, I, I, I was curious about the distance and, and it's about 150 miles away from Missoula. And that's a long distance to travel in the 1920s. Uh, yeah, you're not going to have cars going 75 miles an hour down the turnpike. It's going to take right. you a while to get back. Right. And as a result, you're not going to come back very often. And we see that, uh, and it, the infrequency with which he does come back, um, the reverend's wife makes this big deal about, I'm going to set out towels for you, and I'm going to set up your room for you. Right. It's not as if he's one town over and can swing by any time he wants. Yeah, and um, sh- and speaking of the mother, she gets very upset when um, he abruptly leaves uh, one dinner uh, with the four of them. He just gets up and, and leaves, and she's like, oh, I thought we were going to... Oh. And then, and then she and then she sort of remembers her place, which is another line of conversation. The reverend's wife, the the dutiful woman, um, the homemaker, not not speaking up against the the male family member, even though it's her son. And it's always sort of puzzled me as to whether her angst in that moment is because he's leaving, or is it because she knows where he's going, or both. And in either case, she knows that it's not her place to say anything. Um, it's probably the the 20s. all of the above. It is. Yeah. It is definitely all of the above. Uh, in that case, um, I think she knows, um, or at least has an idea of the crap that he gets up to. Um, maybe not knowing fully that he's in a lot of gambling debt, but I think she. Yeah, I think she knows. Um, but we can let's let's save the um, gender roles um, for uh, for a little bit because w- there's more to say on just all of the all of the gender gender roles and and uh, in, in among all of the characters I think. Um, but before we do that, let's take a quick break, and we'll come right back. Hey, listener. Thanks for sticking around this episode. I hope you're enjoying it. Anyway, I need your help in growing this podcast's audience. In past episodes, I've asked you to share this podcast with five of your friends. Let's keep doing that. Share this podcast on social media, especially if you really liked an episode. Share that episode. Tell five of your friends or family if they have an interest in film or psychology, or even better, both. Growing the audience is our goal for the second year of programming, and so we need your help to get that done. 
other ways to contribute to the podcast include tips to our PayPal, found on our website, becoming a patron at patreon.com slash cinemapsychpod, rocking some sweet merch from our Spreadshirt shop, and or leaving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast service. Now back to the show. Alrighty, uh, so just before the break, we we um, you mentioned some gender roles, and I said, "Hey, put a pause on that." So here, let's let's bring that into the fold because I think every single character in this period piece uh, flouts some aspect of gender roles in frontier uh, 20th century America. Uh, so you mentioned the mother, uh, the dutiful Christian wife of the rev- wife of the reverend. Um, she was a homemaker um, and we don't really see her much outside of the kitchen slash dining room in that movie. And so obviously purposeful, right? But I think one of the bigger gender roles is um, not necessarily among the uh, characters, but just overall, um, which is the idea the idea of machoism, masculinity, and what what I think a lot of gender researchers these days would call toxic masculinity. Right. You had mentioned it earlier in the show about how the brothers need to spill their blood uh, in order to prove that they are are indeed men. And they do this as boys, by the way, by the way, Jorson, Joseph Gordon Lovett as um, young Norman in one of his early roles. So I, I thought he did it well. Um, so the idea of being a a purposeful and traditional manly man right i think that's that's correct as i mentioned before the idea of um the kids you know you you can't be a man until you have spilled blood they watch the two older drunkards fighting and cut to the scene in the schoolyard where now the two kids are fighting um i should also mention that Joseph Gordon-Levitt had a lot to learn about how to act a fight scene, but okay, we'll let we'll let it go. He was a kid. Wow, uh, right? Hey, there's the criticism. That's shade, you know, serious shade at uh, Joseph, and he cares what I think. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, we also see it coming, you know, all the way through their adolescence um, into their young adulthood. Um, one of the more uh, amusing scenes was when they are out. Uh, the, the the boys shimmy down the gutter pipe and sneak out of the house, which is sort of a rite of passage. And they're passing around the liquor bottle that one of them probably swiped from their parents' bar. And they go to shoot the shoots. They're going to steal a rowboat. Okay, here we go. Um, we've got to test the, test the waters of masculinity by stealing something. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go down these uh, absurd rapids and we'll, we'll die famous. And... The idea here that they've got to prove something um, both to the world and the brothers to each other as we sort of have a sibling rivalry happening here. It all goes back and forth with this coming of age and making very foolish decisions that in certain circumstances could have been disastrous. So toxic masculinity is a, a pretty good description. 
And I will add just to that to and um, to the uh, uh, which is connected to Paul's alcoholism. Um, when uh, Norman visits Paul at the Helena newspaper, and it's like ten o'clock in the morning or something like that, and and Paul pulls out a flask and takes a drink and then hands it to uh, Norman, and Norman's like, "It's ten o'clock. A little bit in the early morning. for me." Yeah. yeah. And then he's like, what are you, uh, uh, some sort of um, uh, pansy now? Him, the East Coast has made you soft. Yeah, this, are you soft? Right. Uh, because what's wrong? I mean, let's, let's be honest. Of things that are soft, what's wrong with them? So there's my plea there. But, uh, and then so he takes him up on that and takes a swig and it's just like, ah, uh, because it's probably pure moonshine. Pure pat bathtub gin, uh, and and then Paul takes a drink and and is is unfazed by its um, toxicity. <laughs> I thought that was I thought that was an interesting little little jab about masculinity. Um, and the interesting thing that I that just occurred to me is that uh, when they're fly fishing. They really don't show it. Okay. There's really no masculinity. A, a very, very small amount as they're in competition for who can catch more sure. fish. Sure. Or who okay. can catch the bigger fish. Right. But that's okay. all That's all sort of tongue-in-cheek to them. At the end of the day, um, I don't think they really care that much other than who got the biggest fish. And there, there's they're a wonderful scene ones. where all three of the men are fishing, the two boys <laughs> and the father. Yeah. And the boys are arguing over who got the biggest fish. And then the father pulls out his winning biggest fish and says, I'd say the Lord has blessed us all today. <clears throat> it's just that he's been particularly good to me. And that was sort of an, that was an hysterical moment where he says, you know, boys, you might be good, but I'm still better. Yeah, which... Uh... <laughs> Which is interesting from his character's perspective because in his traditional gender role, he is the domineering father. And very early on in the movie, he is shown to be extremely rigid. I mean, telling uh, young Norman to keep writing a paragraph. Uh, I, will, I will say, though, that I got a tiny smidge of validation when uh, <laughs> the reverend kept telling him to now write half of it. And half I was like, brevity. Yes. Brevity. Parsimony. Parsimony. <laughs> um, and because that's, you know, that's what I, I t teach uh, all of my, especially research methods, methods is that, you know, brevity wins the day. Be concise. Um, and I use Daryl Bem's uh, uh, exercise on that one or well i guess it comes from strunk and white um but daryl pam used it in in how to write and had in his paper how to write good uh g-u-d uh i think right. is i think is how he wrote the title um but uh from strunk and white where they give this huge paragraph and then they cut like pretty much 90 percent of it yeah, away yeah yeah something like that and and um i was like Wow, I guess Norman McLean was um, E.B. White or, or William <laughs> Strunk. 
It's it's interesting because that that's that's an awesome scene, and then of course when he finally gets it right, he says, "Now throw it away. It wasn't really worth much to begin with, and now you can go fish." Um, you mentioned that the Reverend is very domineering, and sort of that brings us yeah. to another another concept from psychology. I know we've sort of moved away from the general conversation, um, but the parenting styles, the the work of um, Diana Baumrind, um, and thinking about the way that the parenting interaction works, to me was really interesting because. The Reverend is both authoritarian as well as uninvolved at the same time, and uh, perhaps at different times he has different ways of of parenting the children. And this may be a function of the 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 age where you know fathers did certain things, and then it was left to mothers to do the nurturing. Right. But you don't see, you don't see much uh, in the way of. Um, endearments between the father and the son. Mm-hmm. Um, the only real expression of love um, is indirect through the fishing. Um, right. And there's one scene where, uh, it, going back to that scene where the three of them were fishing together, um, Norman and the Reverend are sitting on the bank watching Paul fish. Mm-hmm. And um, the Reverend just reaches over and he pats Norm on the leg. You remember that scene? It just sort of mm-hmm. just pats him on the knee. Yeah. And that is... That is one of the only expressions of affection throughout the entire movie. Another one after Norman gets a professor offer, and the the Reverend says, "I am pleased." Yeah, I am so, pleased. So strange, right? And and you know Norman's heart is exploding at that moment. It's the closest the Reverend can ever come to saying, "I love you," and I'm proud of you. As time passed, my father's struggle for more to hold on to, asking me again and again, had I told him everything. And finally, I said to him, maybe all I really know about Paul is that he was a fine fisherman. You know more than that, my father said. He was beautiful. And that was the last time we ever spoke of my brother's death. Indirectly, though, Paul was always present in my father's thoughts. I remember the last sermon I heard him give, not long before his own death. Each one of us here today will, at one time in our lives, look upon a loved one who is in need and ask the same question. We are willing to help, Lord, but what, if anything, is needed? For it is true we can seldom help those closest to us, Either we don't know what part of ourselves to give, or more often than not, the part we have to give is not wanted. And so it is those we live with and should know who elude us. But we can still love them. We can love completely without complete understanding. I just think it's interesting how at different times, he he occupies those different parenting styles, and that's a really interesting discussion topic for classes because we often have students say, "Well, what kind of parent am I going to be?" And I tell them, "Don't think of these as discrete; they're continuous. Everyone who has children at one point or another is all of these four, and so yeah. it's not you know A, B, C, or D. It's it's usually a a mishmash of all of them on some level." Yeah, and um, I'm going to give a shout-out here to Michael Wells uh, from the uh, STP group. Um, the your uh, This is the uh, an abridged version of the Your Thoughts 
segment because um, I think he's the only one who uh, who who added added something to. I mean, it, it's a an obscure film, so I'm 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 okay with that. But he, I I ask uh, I asked what what people might use this film for in their teaching, and he wrote dealings of family loss. Dealings with addiction, gambling, not feeling loved by your father, uh, the role of institutions like church and the and that institution's role in maintaining the social order, which is what the reverend espouses pretty much throughout the entire film. Um, rivalries and families and how marriages of religions might affect couples relationships talk about Jesse in just a second and um, how birth order might actually affect your personality and life choices. Uh, Super correlational stuff. But I thought that when I read that uh, from Michael, I thought that was actually quite interesting how um, uh, older siblings might tend to become parents themselves, whereas younger siblings need direction uh of course i say that with the broadest of paintbrush strokes as i can um having the ac- actual opposite happen with me and my sister <laughs> uh so yeah uh i i thought and so thank you michael for adding your your thoughts on that um that really kind of helped me put my watching into a little bit more uh perspective so i i appreciate that Back to the gender role conversation just really quickly because um, we have to highlight one other character that we haven't really talked about yet, which is um, Norman's future wife, Jessie. She's introduced um, quite early in the film as uh, a woman on a, uh, at a, at a bar. I'll just call it a bar. And um, they meet and then he tries to ask her out over the phone, which is hilarious. Uh, old style phones, man. Um, hi, Mrs. MacArthur, whatever her name is. <laughs> Can you connect me to Jesse? Yeah, I know it's long distance. <laughs> so good. Uh, so um, they end up having uh, an interesting kind of courtship, we'll call it, uh, because she is more of a free thinking woman. Um, and what did you learn, Jason? What did you learn? Oh, you're going to embarrass me. So, yep. um, Jesse's character uh, early on, we learn, um, that she had tried to go to college and had not continued either because she quit or she flunked out. And someone says, what did, what did she major in? And her little brother pipes up. He says, flapperism. And for mm-hmm. all of the years that I've enjoyed the movie, I never knew what flapperism or what a flapper was. I always thought it was um, uh, some sort of fashion trend or maybe the skirts of the Roaring Twenties. And I just recently learned that a flapper is a girl of the 1920s who pushed boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, someone who did not fall into what she was expected to do and sort of bucked the trend. And um, not to sort of digress into other movies... Uh, but it reminded me of some of the characters from Footloose, uh, most notably John Lithgow's daughter, um, who's prim and proper until he turns his back, and then she's dancing to the music that they say is um, so, you know, owned by Satan. And sort of the analogy, or the, uh, the, the parallel there is, once again, Reverend's daughter, a minister's daughter, um, or in this case, son, 
um, sort of bucking the trend. So her flapperistic ways really pushes Norman because he is raised to expect a demure, um, domestic, obedient woman. That's the mother figure. And Jesse is anything but, but he's really, really taken with her. Yeah, and I think there's a, a really great scene um, that sort of encapsulates their entire relationship. And it's after um, her, he takes uh, Neil out for fly fishing and he ends up just having uh, sex with a drunkard woman from the bar. And Neil, they Neil up, has sex with her. Not, yeah, yeah, not, not Norman. Norman. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and they, Neil and this other woman um, who kept calling them uh, Buster, I think. Something like that. Uh, and they end up getting like terrible sunburns because they fall asleep on their stomachs in the middle of the woods. Um, but she is, but Jesse is very mad at Norman for letting his, uh, letting her brother end up that way. And um, he's like, well, you know, I need a ride back home. And she's like, all right, fine. So first of all, she's driving the car. And second of all, She's like, oh, there's some sort of accident down the hill, which is a more direct route to your home. But you know what? We're going to take the um, uh, we're going to take the train tracks and we're going to go through the tunnel and we're going to come out on a bridge and we're going <laughs> to and, and then I'll get you home. Uh, so it, it's just like she is unflappable. <laughs> you see what I did there? I see what uh, you did there, which uh, would have been quite uh quite a a deviation from um the norm of the time especially in frontier um in the frontier west and they they accentuate it when when she's driving on these tracks across the bridge with about an inch to spare on either side of the wheels you can see norm kind of losing his mind and he's like you know uh trains come down here all the time and he's looking over the edge and sort of moving closer to the middle of the car and she never even turns her head she just kind of looks sidelong at him and sort of gives this evil smile as if yeah i got this guy he's he's mine now mm -hmm. and um it, it's a great scene yeah so as far as gender roles are concerned not a traditional not a traditional woman um and uh what what jason would now call a flapper you know i'm i'm glad that i understand the term now every time i watch i'll remember what flapperism is yeah man there you go. She majored in flapperism. I wonder if that's a subtle nod to she got thrown out of the college for not being sort of a demure good girl. One of the areas that um, I always like to look at is uh, having been sort of a humanist at heart, looking at some of the work of Rogers and going back to the relationship between the reverend and his sons. We spoke before about this idea of um, you know, how they were raised in an authoritarian background, authoritarian parenting, um, that I think that really naturally brings in a, a conversation of sort of unconditional positive regard mm -hmm. versus conditions of worth. And from from the earliest scenes, we see that the Reverend is is much more approving of Norman than he is of Paul. They they don't try to hide that. And, you know, Norm goes off to college, um, and Paul sort of Busses around as a lifeguard for a while before he ends up in college. Norm gets himself a respectable career, and Paul's a journalist, which I suppose for them was <laughs> less than the ideal model. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's sort of a nod to the idea that um, some of Paul's struggles 
may be an attempt to find himself as he's seeking out that approval of the father figure that he's he's not going to get, except for perhaps maybe 10 seconds when he catches the ultimate fish. And then, as you mentioned at the start of our conversation, uh, skip to, okay, he's dead. So um, maybe that's the climax of, of his life. I, I got the fish. My father approves of me. I don't really need to be here anymore kind of thing. Yeah, he did say that he was never going to leave Montana. And he didn't. Uh, now, he didn't He didn't end up dying um, in, in the way that you would hope that he would have. Like, a long life and potentially doing what he loved, fly fishing. But... Um, he didn't go out with a, with a whimper either. Well, you know, what I really would have anticipated the first time I watched the movie is some sort of alcohol related death. Um, you know, a, a driving accident, or maybe he tries to shoot the shoots again as an adult, but it's actually his gambling addiction that, um, costs him his life. And for those who've seen the movie, but didn't catch it. All of the fingers, I think it was on his left all, hand, were broken. All of the bones in his right hand were broken. His right broken. hand, okay. And that's, of course, because that is the hand that you traditionally hold your cards with. And so he was killed over gambling debts that after a while, you know, the, uh, the debts were called in, he couldn't pay them, and that was his comeuppance. So I, um, um, I, read, I, I read that a different way, um, actually. It? Um, that he didn't he didn't go down without a fight. He broke the f- uh, bones in his hands by um, punching. Oh no, I, I read that very differently. That yeah. either yeah. during or after his death, they shattered all of the bones in his hands to tell him, "If you're going to play cards and you're going to lose, you better be able to pay up, Sonny." Because earlier in the movie, when they won't let him play, they said, "So long, Sonny," and it just seems like he's. He's tangled with the wrong bad men for too long, and this was the consequence. So, well, um, right. I mean, I don't disagree with all of that. I just, uh, I think that when he did get his comeuppance, he fought for it, and that's why he broke. And that's why he ended up breaking because that's usually your right hand. If you are right-handed, is the stronger punch. And so, if he was going for someone's face, it, it could be. But I always, I always read it differently. But that's okay. May, you know what? Maybe both. Maybe both. <laughs> uh, I don't think both. I don't either. <laughs> but um, we'll we'll agree that you were wrong. That's okay. Okay, I've been wrong before. <laughs> um, uh, so one, uh, a couple more things that I want to um, add here is I really did enjoy the scene with Mabel, who was a, a Native American woman. Uh, um, who is very briefly in the movie, just a fling of Paul's apparently. And it was, as you mentioned, um, it was, you know, to buck all of the trends of the day. And he does it with such gusto. Like, he doesn't care. Um, but it, it also gives you a window to how front the frontier west at the 20 at the the start of the 20th century was extremely bigoted and racist toward native americans and it was literally their land um and uh he throws it in front of in in all of their phases 
Yeah, the day of the speakeasy where you have to have this special knock to be let in. And then they say, come on, Paul, he's, he's walking in with a woman who they would typically disallow. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know the rules. And he says, I just don't, I just flat out don't like the rules. And then um, the waitress won't serve his date. So um, he, he makes the waitress serve his date. And then in a final middle finger to the establishment, not only does he get up and dance with her in front of everybody, but they sort of clear the dance floor with all of their swirling and twirling. And he's making sure everybody knows you're not going to tell me what to do. And I'm going to take your rules and sort of throw them right back in your face. And again, and he's challenging them. And, you know, that's what he does. Hey, here they are. Brother. Hi. Hi. Jesse, this is my baby brother, Paul. And uh, this is Mona Sita. Mabel. Hi. Shall we? What do you say, Polly? Hey, Polly. Hi. Murph. Preacher. Preacher? How are you, Murph? Long time, long time. Good to see you. Uh, you know the house rules as good as I do, Paul. No engines, period. I just flat don't like the house rules, Murph. Me neither. What are you gonna make me do here, Polly? Just get us a table for four. Last time, Paul. Hello, Judge. Paul. Oh, you can get him back. Get drunk and dance naked on his table. Yeah, beat hell out of the son of a bitch. To note, the dancing is very much, um, very much taboo because it's gyrating and very close. Um, not, not thing, not dance moves that people were doing in the 19 teens and 1920s, unless you were, um, breaking, unless you were a flapper. Yeah, he was doing a little bit of sort of the dirty dancing and the hips moving together, and that was the kind of thing that just wouldn't be seen. So uh, in, in every metric of thumbing his nose at the establishment, he is not only happy to do it, but he's going to put it right out there in front of everybody. I want to thank Jason Spiegelman for joining us to discuss uh, A River Running Through It, um, because it ran through it. And sometimes it runs through it. Depends on what tense you're in, right? Uh, so he's shaking his head right now because he doesn't like my joke. We've done this. We've done the joke about three times. Um, so Jason, as we end, um, while you're saying goodbye, uh, is there anything you'd like to plug? Oh, I appreciate it, but given the um, given the way coronavirus has sort of shut everything down that we're all doing. I don't have a whole lot of plugs right now. Um, maybe I'll briefly mention that the uh, annual conference on teaching, which is being held in October, uh, has gone virtual. And mm -hmm. uh, it'd be great to have people show up for that. Um, I was looking forward to having it in my hometown this year of Pittsburgh, but, uh, well, maybe next year or the year after. Um, but other than that, I just uh, wish everybody a good, safe semester. I hope you all avoid the coronavirus. And I really appreciate being back on your show. So. 
thank you very much for having me and fare thee well, everyone. Thanks, Jason. Uh, everyone, until the next episode, thanks for listening.